We have a good God and he speaks to us and he speaks to us through his word. So we are going to read John from John chapter 18 today and let the Holy Spirit lead us, teach us, and guide us through his word. This is John. We'll pick up at chapter 18, verses 12 to 14, and then verses 19 through 24. Here's the word of the Lord. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who is. You are a God who speaks. You are a God who is present. You have revealed yourself through your word and ultimately and perfectly through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that your spirit is here. Your spirit is here with us. You are holy, holy, holy. Father, may it be our longing and our desire. May it be the thing that we seek to to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in your temple. Would you breathe on us today? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you show us the face of Jesus? Would we know the love of the Father? Spirit, minister to us today. We love you. I need your help in preaching this message, so would you help me? It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A killing expediency. That's what this was. This was a killing expediency. It was a killing of expediency. That is what this passage is about. And I want to try to bring some clarity to what I mean by that phrase by the end of the sermon. But before we do that, we should understand the word expediency. Expediency, or to do something that is expedient, is is basically to, to do something not so good to get something that you think would be good for you. Okay? It is a shifty or a shady way, a shortcut kind of thing to get something that is for yourself, for self-gain. Doing something bad to get what you think would be good for you. This is a killing of expediency. Now we have here today before us a tale of three high priests. It is an unholy collision of Machiavellian politics and 
religion. It is in the dark of night. There is a murder plot plotting. There are white knuckles power grabbing. There are insidious motivations, sinister intentions lurking beneath virtuous sounding words. There is the tension of an unlawful interrogation. There is violence. There's injustice. There is abuse. There's a kingpin. There's a bunch of cronies. There's a face-off of good versus evil. There's an ancient hostility, and there are dark echoes of the Garden of Eden all here in our passage today. And today, as we step further from the Garden of Gethsemane, go towards the cross and to the garden tomb that Jesus is buried in, we're going to continue to see how John is writing these scenes as the garden in reverse, as God reversing the curse that broke open between the trees there in the center of Eden. And what we have here is not simply a scene of what happened to Jesus by by some wicked men. We have a variation of what happens daily, of what happens to us often in this world. And so we have here not only a story of how Jesus overcame evil with good, but a scene in which we see how we are to be like Jesus as his apprentices, as his followers. This scene is a schoolroom for us as apprentices of Jesus. So, this text, we have three high priests, Annas, Caiaphas, and Jesus. And and maybe it's a tale of four priests, uh, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So what's happening? What's happening in our passage? Well, uh, we need to untangle a few confusing things. So first, uh, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own. He's been arrested. He's been handcuffed and punched and pushed along in the garden in which he was walking with his disciples. Jews and the Gentiles, they came to get Jesus. The, the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman soldiers, they came to get Jesus. And Jesus didn't run. Jesus didn't form a militia, start a protest or start a shootout. He gave himself over and was bound like an animal. So, what is this hunting party going to do with Jesus now that they have him? What is this hunting party going to do with him? Well, the text makes it quite clear. Jesus is not off to due process. He's off to an execution. So he says they take him to a man named Annas, and Annas is described as the father-in-law of of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest of ancient Israel. He was the high priest from 18 to 36 AD. Caiaphas is the is the leader of the Jewish ruling body that's called the Sanhedrin, the ruling body that oversaw um, judicial issues and religious issues in Israel. And it's Caiaphas who John reminds us of in John chapter 11 that puts forward what you could call the, the final solution to the problem of Jesus. They had to kill him. They had to get him out of their hair. He's got to die. If he doesn't die, then they're going to lose their power. They're going to lose their prestige. And, and all the people are going to suffer because the iron fist of Rome is going to fall on a rebellious Israel. So it's expedient for Caiaphas and the Jews. It's shady, but it's going to get the job done. So in chapter 11, there's a hatching. There's a serpentine plot to kill Jesus. And now in 18, Jesus is headed off to a not-so-fair trial. The outcome has been decided. 
So we need to understand a few things about Caiaphas and Annas to really understand this passage. So Caiaphas and Annas, they are members, like I said, of the Sadducees, which was the elite, wealthy, upper crust crew uh, of Israel. They were the ruling party that held the office of high priest. And they were known for working in league with the Romans, for having a hunger for power, and grabbing after money. Probably not the best resume. Now what happened over the long years of Israel's history is that the position of high priest became a bought position, so to speak, a position that had much less to do with serving God's people through offering sacrifices, through prayer, through mediation, and more to do with prestige, power, and self-gain. Probably sounds nothing like the Western church at all, Um, but I'll leave that there. Our text tells us that both Caiaphas and Annas are both high priests. Is this one of those errors that the Bible is full of? Not at all. This is John telling us about the shadowy power politics that are going on. So let's try to understand this. See, Annas it was the man of power in Jerusalem. He was the man of power in Jerusalem. He had been the official high priest. But he wasn't currently. He was appointed by the Roman powers as the first high priest of the newly formed Roman province of Judea in A.D. 6. And he did that till 15, until he was deposed of. They put him on the throne, so to speak, or the seat of power, and they took him off the seat of power. He was deposed. He lost his official role, but he didn't lose his power. He didn't lose his influence, because he still had political power behind the scenes. He had a lot of social capital and a lot of social power. He was a puppet master behind the scenes. Now, Caiaphas, he was the acting high priest, but behind him was the shadow priest, the real family power. He was kind of, kind of the, the godfather of, of the family, you might say. Now, Annas' family was extremely, extremely, extremely wealthy. I'm not talking about they had some funds. They were probably the richest or one of the, the richest families in all of Jerusalem. So, Jesus is first taken to this guy, Annas, to face this godfather-like power that he, he wielded. And there's probably another reason why Jesus is taken to him first. And it's because Caiaphas is off with his cronies getting this whole kangaroo-like trial put together, this whole mock trial put together, because none of this is going to be done by the books. So recap. We have three high priests. Annas, shadow high priest. Caiaphas, the official high priest. And we have Jesus. We have Jesus. He is the true high priest. So what happens? Well, let's dig into it. Verse 19. The high priest, Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So here the trial begins, and Annas asks Jesus about two things, his apprentices or his disciples and his teaching. Why these two? Why does he ask about these two? Why does John call these to our attention? Well, remember, Jesus is being ushered to the cross, right? So what Annas is trying to do is he's trying to draw out what will incriminate Jesus. In other words, he asks about his disciples because he's asking about Jesus' little militia. He's wondering how ready is this little crew that Jesus has put together for sedition because if he can put together a charge of sedition against Jesus, Rome won't have it. There's a zero tolerance policy with Rome. There's no uprising with Rome. If you, you don't say no to Rome unless you want your blood on the ground. So if he can get Jesus on a charge of sedition, creating a band of rebels against Caesar, then Jesus is done. 
And that's why he asks about his, his apprentices, his disciples. Now, how about the teaching bit? Well, this falls more on the Jewish side of things because if he can gig Jesus on the heresy of blasphemy, well, that, that's a capital offense. They can kill Jesus. So he's not after truth. He goes after Jesus from both a political and religious or theological angle. Now, how does Jesus respond? Brilliant. Brilliantly as always. Look at verse 20. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. So, question, which one is he addressing? The, The disciples' question or the teaching question? The teaching question, exactly. He says, look, you don't, you don't need to ask me what I've done. I've done it in public, and you've sent your people to question me, and no one can hang any guilt on me. In fact, they walk away going, dang, we didn't get him again. I'm not doing anything in secret that doesn't gel with my public ministry. I have nothing to hide. I've made that very clear. So Jesus says this, but then he doesn't answer the question about his apprentices. Why? I think what we have here is another echo of Jesus being the the true Adam. See, Jesus is protecting his disciples. He's guarding them. He's he's keeping them safe. And, And where Adam failed to protect and care for and guard Eve, Jesus steps up and protects and cares for and guards his church. Adam went into passivity and did nothing. Jesus said, put the target on me. I'll take the hit. And then Jesus goes on here, verse 21. He says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. At this point, the tension in the room was thick. What did Jesus just do? Well, he asked a question. Yeah, he asked a question. But what did that question do? See, that question exposes that this is an unlawful interrogation. Annas had no legal right to be questioning Jesus under dark in this way, in this fashion. This was an unlawful interrogation. This was not due process. Annas knew it, and Jesus would not be bullied. So Jesus asked the question, and in asking the question, he draws out what is wrong. So good. So we we often will miss the bravery and the gravity of this, but Annas didn't, and neither did the temple policeman. Did you ever wonder why it was that Jesus asked a question and then he just gets slammed across the face for it? Look at verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus gets rapismud fun word, rapisma. This is a Greek word for an open hand, hard hit, just right across the face. See, Annas' bodyguard registers what Jesus has just done. He understands what that question meant. Jesus calls the high priest out. He says, what you're doing is wrong. So now, what does Jesus do after he's been smacked? Well, Jesus answers the strike. He answers it with another question. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him. Who's the him? 
the officer, the, yeah, the, the temple guard. He answers him, if what I said to you is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Why do you hit me? It's not because Jesus did anything wrong. Jesus is still in the right. Jesus has not only asked a question, but he's done something much deeper. So let's not miss what Jesus has just done. He does a couple things simultaneously that are, that are brilliant. Look what he does. Jesus has simultaneously loved his enemies by respecting them as human beings, image bearers of God with, moral, with, with agency and moral responsibility. See that? He is, he's treating them like human beings with agency and with moral responsibility. He's not just treating them as opponents, as one-dimensional characters to flatten with you know, a verbal smackdown. He called them to look into their hearts. Why do you? That's the question. He says, why? To the high priest. And then he says, why? To the guy who just abused him. Why do you do these things? This is a heart-aimed question. He's asking them to look into their heart, their motivations. And he calls out injustice and evil. The question calls out injustice and evil. He does not turn a blind eye to what is wrong. And then fourth, he has not sinned in confronting injustice and evil. He confronts it, but he has not been implicated. He has not been indicted. He, he has no guilt for confronting evil. He does it righteously. Now what's, what's the result of all this, by the way? <clears throat> he remains bound like an animal. Jesus gave the most perfect, incredible answer to an impossible situation, does it brilliantly, and he's still bound like an animal. And, and I, I think this should teach us and help us understand and have a right theology about righteous living. Righteous living in a broken world doesn't mean righteous responses. When we live righteously in a broken world, we can expect abuse. We can expect resistance. We can expect friction. But sometimes we, we buy into this lie that if we just live rightly, then everything will, will go well for us. And then we think, well, I must have done something wrong because it's coming hard against me. Often it's coming hard against you because you've done something right. Man, who is like this Jesus, though? Who faces injustice like him? Who faces bullying like him? Who faces power plays and abuse like him? If you just really step back and you, just, you read the narrative of the Gospels, Jesus is stunning. He's stunning. He's brilliant. He's, he's loving. I mean, who could write a character like this? I want us to reflect on a few things here as his apprentices on how Jesus handles toxic, threatening, unjust, evil behavior. You know, Jesus strikes back. That might sound un-Jesus-like. Uh, but he strikes back with one of the greatest weapons against injustice and violence. He strikes back with a good question. A good question. He doesn't get belligerent, but he cuts to the core of the heart with a good question. See, the truth is, a good question is a form of grace and truth. A good question is a form of both grace and truth. 
to ask a good question that gets to the heart of the issue is to invite the other person into self-examination and dialogue and relationship. It's not dropping a bomb on a conversation and finishing it up with, you know, a game winner. It's asking this question that then calls them to enter back into relationship with you so you can keep this thing going together. Together. And it is to indict wrongdoing and illumine reality. Questions indict wrongdoing and illumine reality. So questions. A good question is a form of both grace and truth. I see this in in the dynamics with my kids all the time. Right? So let's say... uh, one of my daughters rips the toy out of her sister's hand, right? And so I got one crying and one clutching and growling, you know. I have a couple options. I got a lot of options. Uh, but let's, let's narrow it to two. Let's say two of those options are, well, the first option would be um, I grab the toy out of her hand and I thrust it back into my other daughter's hand and say, you're, you're in the wrong. You're being bad. You're being mean. And just, you know, that's an option. And it would be true. Because she's being mean. She isn't doing something right. Another option is maybe to get down on a knee and look her in, in the eye and go, sweetheart, is this how we behave as members of a family who love one another? How do you think your sister feels now that you've done this? How do you feel? You can't be feeling good inside, right? Is there another way to respond? And see, what happens automatically with option one, the tendency is is for the heart to harden and defensiveness rises up and combativeness and belligerency just comes out. Well, she started it, you know, the whole thing. Option two has a tendency to break through the moment while showing the action as wrong. Yet it also gives that person a chance to make a right choice rather than to be stuck in a past action. They now have to enter into that moral agency as an image bearer of God in relationship with you, the question asker. Too often we don't ask the good questions. We just blast back something that may be true. And here's the point of application for us. Well, there's a thousand points, but friends, we live in a world and a culture that is increasingly antagonistic towards Jesus and the gospel. And we live in a world where it's like the only sin left, the only transgression left is to be a Christian. You do realize that elementary students, middle school students, high school students, university students, they learn quickly that it is the safest and most expedient way to um, stay okay in school is to keep their faith in the closet. Because if they're outed as a Christian, reputations are destroyed and violence can come their way both social and physical. We live in the tyranny of the intolerance of tolerance. We live in a culture that says tolerance, 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 and says Christians aren't tolerant, so we won't tolerate the Christians. It's like the last sin left to be a Christian. And God, the faith, the church, you, me, we will be on trial more and more and more than I think we would like to admit in this growing resistance to the truth We need to learn how Jesus handled these situations. We need to learn to face evil and injustice like Jesus does, and he overcomes evil with good. We need need to learn to confront evil with a good question. We need to love the enemy who is in front of us to see their humanity 
and call out the truth, all while not sinning out of anger or hate. See, Jesus is doing here what God did in the garden. This is the garden again. Remember, the eating of the fruit, things start breaking, and God comes. And God comes with a question mark, right? He comes with a question mark. He doesn't come with an exclamation mark and slash at them. He comes with a question mark to embrace them. Where are you? Where are you? Who told you you were naked? What did you do? What is God doing? He's offering grace and truth. He's trying to reestablish relationship, to draw them in, to, to be in dialogue and conversation with him. Yet at the same time, he's acknowledging what's happened, grace and truth. From the beginning, God was asking us questions as a form of grace and truth. And, and what we need to understand is this is not a very expedient way. It's, it's not the way for, for quick solutions. It often leads to really long conversations or a whole long history of redemption in the Bible. It'll often lead to carrying crosses and suffering. But one of the things I think we need to get into our bones is this, that the way of Jesus isn't expediency. The way of Jesus is the way of cross-carrying. The way of Jesus is the way of cross-carrying. Jesus calls us to die to self, to die to convenience, to die to holding on to our power, to doing what is advantageous for us in the moment. We are, to call, we are called to die daily, to carry our cross. And the good thing most often is the hard thing. The way of Jesus is not the way of expediency. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Now, with that loaded into our our minds, there's another lesson in here that Jesus teaches us about how to face unlawful trials, accusation, injustice, and evil. So let's go back a few verses. Let's go back to verse 19. Are we doing okay? Okay. Okay. Our brother Steve's not here. And the room is always so much louder when Steve's here. He's recovering. He's recovering. Okay, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. It is important for us to notice Jesus uses the emphatic I in Greek there three times. He goes back to his actions and his life that he has lived. He goes back to his actions and and the life that he has lived. This is important for us. He's teaching us to turn our attention and turn the conversation back to who he is and what he has done. This is another way in which we should be like Jesus. When God is on trial in our culture, when we are on trial, when the church is sitting in the dock, when you are being questioned about this ridiculous, intolerant, unloving, bigoted faith of yours, one of the best ways to respond is to turn the conversation back to Jesus. Well, what are the Crusades? I mean, the church has done an awful lot of damage in the world. Okay, yeah. Let's talk about Jesus and his way. Well, didn't, didn't the church justify a lot of slavery in these scriptures and Yes, and we should talk about this. But let's also talk about Jesus, not distorted representations of him, not misuse of his word. Well, what about judgment? Isn't isn't your God unloving? How can can he be a loving God in judgment? 
incredible question. I wrestle with these things too, but can we talk about Jesus and how in his love he took our judgment upon himself to give us liberty and life and joy and freedom? Can we talk about Jesus? See, turning the indictments and attacks back to Jesus is not an, an escape a difficult conversation strategy. It's not just like quick, well, Jesus, and then move on. It's actually a press into the deeper reality kind of conversation. Like, no, let's talk about who God is. We see who he is in Jesus. We truly believe here at this church that Jesus is our creator and our redeemer. He is the one that can heal any wound, restore anything that has been ruined. In him, what is torn apart can be reconciled. We should be turning the conversation back to him over and over and over again. So what can we learn from Jesus facing off against evil in this unjust trial? Well, here's two things. Turn the conversation back to Jesus and ask the good question, offering grace while exposing truth. Turn the conversation back to Jesus and ask the good question, offering grace while exposing truth. Unmask evil and injustice with a good question. Call the image bearer in front of you back to their design as a worshiper of God. But again, these are not the ways of expediency. And again, so just to make it clear, let's put out the the definition of expedient uh, again. Um, Expediency is to do a not-so-good thing for a reason that you think is pretty good for you. It's to do a shady, um, a shifty, kind of shortcut-like thing in order to gain something for yourself. And I I was thinking about this on the drive-in, you know, there, if you get to the root of so many of our sins, like expediency is wrapped in those things. Plagiarism. What is plagiarism? Well, it's stealing somebody's stuff so you get the credit for it. It's a, it's a shifty thing. It's a shortcut thing so you get what you want. Right? Stealing is the same, same thing. Sometimes you find yourself in the wrong bed and you're sleeping with somebody, there's an expediency issue. You are trying to get something you want by short-circuiting rightful process and commitment. And you're doing great damage. But you want what you want, so you will try to get it. There's all sorts of ways expediency is wrapped up in all the different sins of our life. The way of Jesus is not the way of expediency. It's the way of cross-carrying. The way of Jesus is the way of killing the, the, the spirit of expediency that is in us. And when you think about it, uh, just like asking that good question that is both a form of grace and truth, the cross is a form of grace and truth. It is in the cross that, that grace is extended to a sinful humanity, but the cross indicts us as well because the cross says that we are sinners in need of salvation by, by grace. So the cross is that form of grace and truth. Now, with with these lessons in mind, here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn to Caiaphas again and what he said in John chapter 11, okay? So John chapter 11. Now, if you remember, in John chapter 11, Jesus does something amazing. He he raises somebody from the dead, right? This is the story of Lazarus. So Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead, and instead of a revival sparking, there's there's a plot of, of power brokers who are trying to figure out what to do with this Jesus. Oh man, what do we do with this Jesus? 
What do we do with him? His power is no longer hideable. There's this obnoxious proof of his power walking around called Lazarus. And people know he was dead, now he's alive. What do we do? So here's what happens in John chapter 11. Here's this meeting. I'll pick up at verse 47 through 50. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Heaven forbid. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better, same word as another passage, it is more expedient for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Whoa. So there it is. Caiaphas has the bravado to say that what other people won't. There's one option. Y'all want to keep your power? You want to keep your prestige? You want to make sure Rome doesn't drop its hammer on us? Because we got to figure this thing out. God can't protect us. Jesus has to die. In his cost-benefit analysis and his moral calculus, it is best to get Jesus gone. They got to get him killed. And though it's going to take some shadow work and some shifty maneuvering and breaking the law at a number of points, this expediency is what is needed. And this expediency is under the guise of patriotism and humane concern. Isn't that gross? It's a gross act of self-preservation. And it was the aim of Caiaphas to preserve the status quo of privilege and position. And things always go south when those who are meant to be ambassadors of Jesus seek to preserve their prestige and their privilege and their position. Just think how often have churches denied Jesus because the leadership was more concerned with keeping privileges and holding on to control. So why revival is needed over and over and over again throughout the centuries because of the corruption and the control of the sinful nature of man and wanting to hold on to things and not letting Jesus do what he needs to do. And so I'm curious though, uh, before we boo at Caiaphas a little bit, kind of like he's, you know, a melodrama villain, like top hat, greasy long mustache, damsel distress on the, on the train tracks, like before, before we boo at him, I wonder, have you ever said, Something like this. Well, it's, it's not the way it should be done, but it's the only way I can get it done. And then done something that wasn't quite, quite right, but you justified the means by the end. I think this indicts us all. And it should serve as a warning for us all. Anytime we set aside the way of Jesus for cross-carrying the hard thing, for an end that justifies the means kind of thinking. And so, a question that we should be asking is how have we sacrificed Jesus through expediency to get what we wanted? How have we sacrificed Jesus through expediency to get the things that we have wanted? I think that's a, that's a good question. It deserves a long walk and some thought and some prayer and probably some confession. At the end of the day. But to follow that question is the good news. We have such good news before us. Look at this. Look at verse 51 through 53. This is so cool. John is writing, commentating on what just happened. 
He did not say this, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. This is so cool. John tells us that Caiaphas spoke from self-interest. Yet the Spirit moved and spoke through him to give a deeper meaning to those words. The high priest of Israel spoke the truth that Jesus would die as the Lamb to save the people. God used Caiaphas' cynical utilitarianism to voice the gospel. How cool is that? You can't beat God. What is meant for evil, God turns for good. Caiaphas preaches elimination The Spirit preaches substitutionary atonement. Caiaphas preaches self-preservation, but the Spirit preaches salvation. So cool. And look how this works out. The office of high priest that God gave to Israel long ago was meant to show the world how redemption would work through a mediator, through blood sacrifice, through substitutionary atonement. And that office was to speak of truth. They were to mediate the relationship between man and God. And that office offered sacrifice for sin. All of that comes to full substance and fruition here because Caiaphas, in his wickedness as the high priest, brings the true lamb to slaughter one for all. Jesus is the true high priest. He is the one that gives his life away to bring life to all others. He is the one who protects his flock. He is the one whose blood can wash away our sins. He is the one who is both God and man. He is the substitute who takes our place. He is the one that dies for the many. It's incredible how he is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. Jesus is the only one who could reverse the curse that erupted into the Garden of Eden. And to come full circle, this is a tale of four priests, not just three. There's actually a a fourth priest that's haunting this passage. There's a fourth priest in there that is calling for this whole thing to come to some kind of resolve. Because in the beginning, in Genesis, the Bible portrays Eden as a temple. Did you know that? It portrays Eden as a temple. And the, 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 the people, Adam and Eve, they are called to guard and to, to keep, or to, to work and to guard, rather, the, the temple or, or the garden. Those are the same words that are applied to the priests later on. So here's what we have. We have four priests in this thing. We have Annas, the shadow high priest. Caiaphas, the official high priest. We have Jesus, the true high priest. But on the very front end of this whole thing, we have the original priest. Humanity. We'll put Adam's name in there. But that first Adam, he failed He failed to work the garden to extend the beauty and the harmony and the boundaries. He failed to protect it from that which was was evil. He ended up going the way of the snake. He ended up accusing God and putting God on trial, saying it's your fault. He ended up bringing destruction by doing what God said no to. And what are Annas and Caiaphas? They're just echoes of the failed Adam, listening to the voice of the serpent grasping after power, not listening to God's word, and then unlawfully putting God on trial, doing what is expedient over what is faithful to hold on to the power and prestige that feels good to their flesh. But Jesus, Jesus is the true high priest who reverses Adam's 
failing, who counters Annas and Caiaphas' snake-like ways. How? By doing the thing that was not expedient, by going to the cross. Again, the cross is a form of both grace and truth. He meets us in the cross, but we're indicted in the cross because it's our sin that put him there. So he calls out injustice with his love. He asks the good questions. He protects his people by laying down his life. He carries his cross. He fights evil with good. And that's our call. As apprentices, we are to fight evil with good. And so may we live lives that are not expedient, but faithful. May we as a church here, as as leadership, do things that are not just expedient, but are hard and good and true. May you as a husband, you as a wife, you as a a college student, you as a single who have wants and needs, may you do what is good and faithful, not what is expedient. Carry the cross and find true life. May the cross be killing expedience in you. May the cross be killing expedience in you. And what a powerful irony. Caiaphas's killing expedience becomes a cross which kills our sinful ways of expedience. Evil is overcome with good. So friends, let us ask good questions to a world that puts us and God and the church on trial. Let us turn the conversation over and over and over again to Jesus and let the gospel be killing expedience in your soul. For the way of Jesus is not the way of expediency. It is the way of cross-carrying. Father, I want to thank you for your grace. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for how you put things in your word that we would never think to write, that we would never think to preach, but we come across and they call us out because you're calling us up to new life and you brought us into your family. And all of us, as broken image bearers have committed acts of sin that, that are because we, we entered into the way of expediency, wanting advantage, wanting gain for ourselves, while shortcutting a good, healthy process, while stomping on other people. That you redeem and you restore and you, you give grace and there is such hope. So Lord, we love you. May we be more and more like you. We thank you that we can come to this table of grace and taste of that hope, taste of that goodness. We love you. It's in the name of Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.